The fifth Whitbread Round the World yacht race is underway. The Whitbread was the race. I made the decision to put an all-female crew into the race. <laughs> so this was the first. Sailing in those days was very much a man's sport. I don't see why I shouldn't be allowed to sail because I'm a girl. We were absolutely determined. Audio from the new documentary Maiden, a film by director Alex Holmes about the very first all-women crew to compete in the Whitbread Round the World race. The film opened in the U.S. on Friday, and it's playing in select cities. Amanda Swan Neal, my guest today, sailed aboard Maiden as the rigger during that 1989 Whitbread race, which was skippered by Tracy Edwards. It was the fifth Whitbread race. A quick side note, the Whitbread was named after the Whitbread Brewing Company, the race's original sponsor. Since 2001, it's been known as the Volvo Ocean Race. And just this year, it changed hands again and will be known as the Ocean Race. But back to Amanda Neal. She grew up in Auckland, New Zealand and sailed to Sausalito aboard a 38-foot sloop that she helped her parents build. Upon returning back to New Zealand, she became a sailmaker and then a professional rigger in Sydney, Australia, before joining the yacht Maiden. Today, she and her husband, John Neal, offer offshore sail training expeditions aboard their Halbergrossi 46, named Mahina Tiara 3. They also teach seminars at boat shows around the country, and I caught up with Amanda in between sessions she was teaching at the Pacific Sail and Powerboat Show here in Richmond, California. It's a fun interview. We did it in a car outside in the parking lot. Their rental car was the only space we could find. So enjoy. There's a new film coming out about Maiden, a new documentary. Tell me about when you first met this boat right so i flew into london and tracy met me at the airport and she'd lost her car keys and tracy was the skipper the skipper so the skipper and uh, one of the other crew girls had come driven because i was one of the first girls on board had driven up from southampton where the boat was coming in to london to meet me and tracy met me and then we got to the car park at heathrow and she couldn't find her keys so it was sort of from the minute, from that minute, Tracy was very flustered. And I mean, I just arrived off the plane having flown from Australia, so I'm not necessarily jet lagged. So then she finally found her keys. We drove to the crew house and all I wanted was to have a shower. I just wanted to have it. And she lived in this big house. And so she said, um, here's your room. And I went to unpack and I, I looked at my room. And there's a bath. And so I go back downstairs and said, is there, a sh- is there a shower? And she goes, well, what's wrong with the bath? I said, well, I just feel like a, sh- a shower. <laughs> she goes, well, this is England. Everyone has baths. I said, well, I, have, I, said, I haven't had a bath since I was five years old. <laughs> I mean, it just, I was, all I wanted was just to have a shower. Yeah. And like, I thought of her sitting in a bath. And I mean, I, I hadn't done baths. So for a start, like from then on, and then she was having a big crew party with lots of old race friends and boys. And, and I think I just talked boy talk. And I, we just never... We never mesh from the beginning. It's just yeah. we started off on yeah. both left feet with Tracy, but which was fine. I mean, you don't have to mesh with everybody. I respected her as skipper. Yeah. And she, she, it was her boat, her campaign, and I was had been flown from Australia to be the rigger, and 
by gosh, I was going to be the rigger. So tell me about the race, the experience of racing around the world. Right. So we spent nine months actually building the boat, refitting it, qualifying. And the day the gun started, I, I was done. I'm like, well, we're here. The, the race has started. Well, this is too easy. Like, we're, all we're doing is just sailing. Yeah, I'd spend nine done, months. The hard of, work's done. Yeah. And, well, this is, these 12 girls aren't going anywhere. I'm on the boat. I'm crew. So well, all I've got to, all I have to do is keep that mast up. So yeah. from then on, it was just a matter of not sailing the boat too hard and just racing around the world. What was it like being part of the first all-female whipwreck crew? What kind of responses did you get? It was, for me, it was huge. I mean, it was absolutely huge because I'd been the first sailmaker. I'd been a rigger. I'd been busting down, well, not busting down these doors, but I'd just been working through my life. So I find yeah. myself. I would say busting down doors. <laughs> I find myself like one of 12 girls racing around the world with 300 guys who's like Steinlager, the lead boat that won was from New Zealand. Their second mast was as high as our mast. I mean, these boys had raced professionally all their lives. Yeah. We... We, the first day I joined the maiden campaign, we were taking bits of metal off the boat, putting them in a van, driving them to the recycling place to get money from the scraps so we could then mm. go back to the boat and, and get a tool to do something else. We had so no money. This. <laughs> yeah, no money. Yeah. yeah. I remember counting. But you held your own. We did hold our own. Yes. Because we were racing. There's in our race, there were four divisions. So there were the big maxi race boats. There were the second division. There was a cruising division. And then there was a smaller boat division, which we were in. So we were racing with, I even forget, four or five other boats. Yeah. What do you think you got out of that experience? I got out of that experience that I can mentally survive 11 women and a cap, one of one of which is the captain. I can put myself in a place that I was not dismissed from the boat. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of psychologically. Tough. Yeah. The racing, the boat was easy. Um, I think also the press was hard. I thought it would, that momentum would continue. I, mean, I must admit at the end of the race, my ego and my sense of Southworth, I was 23. I just raced around the world. Like there's no, there's nothing I can't do. Mm -hmm. There's nothing I can't do. And now I now realize unless you're the captain, <laughs> you're, you're basically a nobody really. It's been hard even now. I mean, I'm 50 years old. That happened 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And to see the new documentary and to watch the Me Too movement and to, to realize where women still are. And I'm not bashing women or where women are supposed to be. I mean, that's why I did the coloring in book is that the way I learn and process information, the way things are, it's still, it's easier, but it's not easier. It's just yeah. where some things change and some things don't. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled where I am now. I mean, teaching, teaching is incredible. It's mm -hmm. very empowering and it's very nurturing and it's giving back. Whereas racing was all about me. And that's, mm -hmm. I ended up, I ended up, like that song, like Michael Jackson, looking in the mirror and not even recognizing who I was and just having, racing is so driven and you're better than everybody else. And as the rigor, all my skills were guarded. I couldn't teach you how to splice because you'd be quicker than me tomorrow. Mm. So you, my, 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 there was a knife in my back the whole time. I couldn't tell anybody anything or, or especially because then there's always someone faster, better, smarter than you who's just waiting to take your place. So living with that for three years was uh, a hard bridge it's to get hard. over. It's a real contrast to what I find in the cruising community. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the things I love about yes, it. Is I know. <laughs> as I started this podcast, people just said, how can I help you? I want to talk to you. Oh, this is great. There more. Let's share more information. Yes, yes, and I find that all over the place. And that's why it's so nice to come to a boat show like here at Pacific Sail and give away. I mean, yes, you have to pay to come into the show because that's paying for the venue and paying for the space. But as presenters, we present for free. Everyone up in the presenting room, we don't get paid. It's 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 just we want to give you as much information as we can for free in an hour and and invite you into the sailing community. Yeah. Or learning community, because it doesn't have to be about sailing. It can be about engines or cruising Mexico, going to a destination. And with right. with some sailings, the link, but this is also a power show. So hence, I really like every boat has an engine. So now it's a nice crossover that I get to meet all the power boaters as well. When did you start sailing? Started sailing with my parents. So my dad was in the Air Force in New Zealand and we would shift every two years. And my dad was the main sailor. He'd grown up in a little sailing town, but his grandfather made him pump gas at the family gas station and all of my dad's friends were off sailing. And so one day my dad decided to build a boat in the back garden. And basically he came home one day and was told to light the fire in the fireplace and he recognized some of the wood and the fireplace from his boat. And his, his father had sort of chopped it up and said, you're wasting too much time building your boat. You're supposed to be working in the gas station. Oh, my Lord. So that sort of lit a fire under my dad and he basically left Literally home. Literally <laughs> lit a fire. Lit a fire under my dad. And he left home and joined. He had a friend who had just left school to join the Air Force. So my dad sort of said, right, I'm going to sign up for the Air Force and move out of home and be gone. So he did that. And he met my mum. My, they got, well, my I came along, so they got married, <laughs> and then they couldn't afford to do anything because now dad's married with a baby and my brother came along. So it wasn't until I was five that my dad realized that he could save up enough money and build a boat in the shed in the back garden at one of the Air Force houses that we lived in. And what size boat did he build? It's a 16-foot boat. It was called a Hartley 16. It's a not necessarily a production boat, but it had a big fleet of racing boats and my dad wanted to race. So he looked at all his friends who had Hartleys and he went and studied all the little boats and he built a super light one. If he's going to build a boat, he wants it to be the best boat. So they built a boat, they called it Amelie, which is half my name and half my mum's name, Leslie. And the boat on the cover of my new coloring in book is called Amelie. And because you've always got to have a bit of mum with you somewhere. Yes. Oh, that's great. And that brings us to the coloring book, which I want to talk about because I saw it. And this is fantastic. You've written a coloring book with a topic that's not one that probably has been in a coloring book before. Well, having sailed all my life and having sailed on Amelie, which had an outboard motor, but I'm coming full circle with my sailing life, I have just released a coloring in book for engine systems so it's not really for kids it's not really for adults it's for someone to sit down or share it with someone or yourself to color in and learn the parts of an engine and this five engine what i consider are the five engine systems i've seen these for anatomy books like when people are in medical mm -hmm. school yeah was that the inspiration no the inspiration was when i was trying to sit my commercial launch master's ticket in new zealand to have a piece of paper to say that i knew about sailing and boats and i was so scared i was going to fail the engine side of the exam it was very hard for me to learn the systems and i would sit for hours on end with this is before the internet with engine books and color and where the water went where the fuel went where where things went into the engine and where things came out so if the examiner asked me a question i could at least try and work out 
And I realize now that most books are written by men, so they're not designed to start at the very beginning. Where does the fuel go? I never knew that once it goes through the injectors, some of it returns, most of it returns back into the tank. I'm like, doesn't, why doesn't it all get used up in the engine? So things never really made much sense to me. So I had to sort of step back. And then when I thought about, well, I've been wanting to do this for 20 years. And I went to a boat show and I saw a seminar done by one of the big diesel mechanics. And he just had one black and white sketch on the seminar slide for an hour. And I sat there, no, I said, no wonder I can't understand engine systems. If I'm looking at one picture with someone talking for an hour, I don't, I'm yeah. not going to get it. And so like, I, keep, I want more. I want to know where things go. So, and I can't draw. So I met an artist last year, Andrea England, who was sailing from New Zealand and to Canada. She's English, so she thinks totally different. <laughs> and like she, thinks like, she thinks like me and she's a school teacher and she was just starting to draw on her own and she was drawing sea monsters. And I thought, great, that's what I need. I need someone who's never seen an engine, who can draw, who can translate an engine system into something that's gonna make it a little more interesting to learn. I can't wait to get my hands on it and look at this. Sure, it's on our website, mahina.com, go for it. Well, you mentioned your trip as a child across the Pacific, and you sailed from New Zealand and ended up here in San Francisco. Tell us a little bit about, was that your first experience at sea, I'm assuming? So we had Emily, and then our boats would get bigger as we moved around New Zealand on Air Force bases. My dad would then expand and measure the length of the Hobbies Club. So we built a 27-foot boat, and we would sell them and make a profit. So each time we Mm. sold the boat, we could afford to build a bigger boat. And in 1977, my dad realized that he was never going to amount to much in the New Zealand Air Force. There is no New Zealand Air Force now. <laughs> and he decided he wanted to, he'd seen a race boat, one of the around the world races, the Whitbread race coming to New Zealand. And my dad's like, he studied the boats and a boat was doing the race for the second time. So he's like, fiberglass, this boat's built of fiberglass. If I build, a, if I study this fiber, I could build my own fiberglass boat and it's going to be strong, better than a steel boat, better than a ferro-cement boat. I think I can build this type of boat with a foam core and I can make it my offshore boat. So he wrote away to Bruce Roberts in America for plans and had a friend who had just retired from the Air Force who worked in plastics and said, this is going to be the revolution of fiberglass and foam core is going to actually something that people can start making boats from. And so what did he build? He built a, he built a 50 foot Bruce Roberts, which is a canoe stern Back then it was a big boat, so no roller filling systems. He modernized a, track, a tractor engine to put into it. He worked in a marine store so he could get parts on the cheap. He, he worked in a rigging loft so he could build the mast and do wow. the rigging. So everything. Really self-built. Basically from the ground up. My mum made the cushions, the curtains, the cut out the carpet. I mean, I painted. I would take, I mean, we, it was a family built boat, which we built in two years. And the boat is still sailing. I went through Crean's birthday storm in 1994. It's called Swan Haven. So we called it after our family name of Swan. Um, yeah. So. How old were you when you took off with your family to go cruising? Our first offshore passage, I was 11. So we took two years to build the boat and we jumped aboard and left New Zealand for the island of Tonga in the South Pacific. That was quite disastrous. We went through what is a, a huge cell, a huge storm, massive. I've never seen in my all my years of sailing, I've never seen anything that big. And I thought that was normal. I thought that was just a storm at sea. Hmm. But um, nowadays with weather forecasting, you should never be in conditions like that. But there's been a couple of storm systems that come through New Zealand. But you carried on. 
We didn't. We oh. had, um, by that stage, we'd run out of money. We were a missionary boat. That's a very long story. But we were in the island of Tonga for about four months for the whole cruising season, watching all the other boats come through from the States or through from Panama. So we sort of sat in one little harbour doing missionary work and working with the church. And in the end, became the ferry for the locals. We got to know the locals so much that we then sailed all through the islands of Tonga. I went, was put in school and learned Tongan and then had no more money. And so we sailed back to New Zealand and sold that boat. Hmm. Which gave us money to build a second boat. So we built a 36-foot boat, which was smaller, so we had more play money. And that boat we sailed to San Francisco. Again, fiberglass? Yes. But Dad had, Dad had refined it. So there's a lot of systems. That took a year to build. We cut back on half the system. Well, half, half of the building process that we took for the first boat. So we had knew a lot of shortcuts now. Did you stop in the South Pacific as well on your way to San Francisco? Well, yes, you have to. Well, it pays to. So we left New Zealand, went to that lower... Austral group in Tahiti and spent some time on the island of Raivavai, came up through Tahiti, then up to Hawaii. We were then planning to go to Canada. We had friends in BC and started sailing towards Canada, but it got too cold. So my dad pulled out my school atlas and looked at it and said, where else can we go? And we'd heard of San Francisco. <laughs> so we sort of veered course and headed for San Francisco. Tell me your impressions of sailing into San Francisco. <laughs> frightening because it was fog which we hadn't expected and we saw a tow tug and tow we went to go behind it the tow and realized it was a double tow so we were then quickly found ourselves in fog behind mm. realizing there was a two it was a tandem tug and tow not just one barge there were two barges one behind the other so we threw the helm over and then dad put my brother and I on the bow as lookout and we had no charts so we knew there was a bridge so we knew from my school atlas that roughly the latitude, we had no radar, no radio. We were just sort of winging it into basically a bridge that went between two headlands. And ship came, we heard a ship in the fog sounding. We heard another ship, so we heard two ships. And we sort of, dad must have had, I don't know, I have to ask my dad. I haven't really, and my brother stutters. And all of a sudden my brother's like, da, 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 da. I heard this almighty roar. I thought we're dead. And I I looked up and it's the traffic coming across the Golden Gate Bridge <laughs> and I'm like oh thank goodness like that, that must be the bridge but just to have my brother stuttering on a bow and, and thinking that looking up that it was going to be a ship that was running us down was actually the Golden Gate with traffic and so we pushed on through and we sort of came out and all of a sudden as it does in the bay it just opened up and there's sunshine and it's a beautiful blue day and there's yachts sailing and the water sparkling and we'd been in fog for three days like absolutely horrified and New Zealand the North Shore is kind of the posh area so we're like well it must be the same in San Francisco so we thought well, if we go to the North Shore side <laughs> of town it must be like it'll be downtown San Francisco which we sort of knew from postcards but the North Shore must be kind of posh so we turned left Pulled into Sausalito, like tied up at a, it was a, the marina was under construction. So we tied up in a berth, we stepped ashore and uh, I don't think we cleared customs. So we could, we'd come from Hawaii, so we were still in US oh, okay. waters. So we didn't, it was 
a weekend. Yeah. So we thought the authorities won't, won't know, but we're right. hungry. We'll go and get a feed. And there's a fish and chip shop in Sauce City. So we went to the fish and chip shop yeah. and we sat down. It was a posh fish and chip shop, like a Kiwi one. We sat down and we looked down and our anchor light, our riding anchor light at the top of the mast was still on. And we felt so silly. Like here we like sailed across the ocean and we pulled into, a, but we still left the, our, our navigation lights at the top of the mast on. And we were like, oh gosh, how, how stupid are we? <laughs> wow, you got the full gamut of the fog and the traffic. And, and then, we heard of the, then we heard later there's this thing called the potato patch out there, which yeah. we did not know about. What year was that? That was Mount St. Helens Blue when we were in Tahiti. So I think that was... And Pink Floyd, Another Brick in the Wall was the top song on the hit parade. Uh-huh. So I have to look back. 81, 82. Okay. I'm not too sure. I yes. was turned 16. So I was born in 64. So, yeah. yes. I turned okay. 16 at the, a friend shouted me dinner at the Royal St. Francis Yacht Club for my 16th birthday. So, oh, wow. Yes. How much time did you spend here in San Francisco? We spent about, well, I guess our visas ran out for the U.S. So between clearing into Hawaii and coming to San Francisco and the time on passage, six months. So okay. I guess we're in San Francisco. We befriended a good friend. We tied up to the Taj Mahal, which was a houseboat there. Yeah, there's, so it's still there in it's Sausalito. Still here. Is it's, it really? Yeah, yeah. So we befriended the owner. He befriended us because we had a Kiwi flag. I don't know if it's flag. the same owner. But. But, and so we, we tied up. Uh, right, I've got photos. I mean, I've, I've got photos. Uh, I remember <laughs> as a kid, we t- would have to creep around the perimeter. But we tied up next to the Taj Mahal. He, he was away. So that's right. So he said you could tie, you could moor for free next to my houseboat, that one there. <laughs> so we're like, really? Okay. So the Taj Mahal. It's hard to miss. It's hard to miss. Um, my dad worked at Herb Madden in the boatyard because we needed money. Uh-huh. So under the table and he became, my he, dad would come home with a new Mexican word every day, mucho trabajo, which is work harder because he became crew boss for the boatyard workers. And uh, yeah. Oh, so that is great. So when gave, you come back here to the area, do you get nostalgic? I get very nostalgic. Oh, no. It was amazing living in Sausalito there because I thought that was America. <laughs> we were given bicycles. People would take us up into the wine country every weekend. Everyone in the marina was so nice. We would find quarters in the vending machines just, like, sitting there. Like, who wouldn't? Who would buy a soda and not pick up the quarters? But, so my brother and I would always, every time we walked past the vending machine, would always check to make sure. They were, and Sausalito would go shopping. We were, laughed one day when we went into the the health food store there and there were these things called free range eggs like you could have <laughs> like people actually worry about chickens like running wild it, was, it seemed so odd that you would actually pay more for an egg that came from a chicken that just ran around free and I mean things that did not make sense to us coming from New Zealand and you come back 40 years later and it's only gotten worse <laughs> and like yeah, well maybe or better maybe we're or more better. aware of know. where that egg comes from now that's but true. it was just bizarre to walk into a store and find free range eggs that's funny where are you based now tell us a little oh, bit now, about fast today. forward now yeah. I live on a very small island in called San Juan Island up in the up in Pacific Northwest um to our drive north of Seattle, to our ferry ride out to our island, which is home of Free Willy the Whale, if you're familiar with Free Willy. <laughs> so live on a, based on a very small island. Yes, it's great. Fantastic. And you and your husband are very well known in the sailing community for your seminars and for the um, passages that you take people on. Tell us a little bit about that. Correct. So I met John Neal in New Zealand when I was working in the rigging shop, having finished racing around the world once and then racing, trying to race around the world and realizing I didn't want to do it a second time. And John sailed into town heading for Antarctica 
on his boat and I was the rigger who outfitted him, his boat. And I thought, wow, this is a way to get off my rat race of ocean racing and where I'm at in life and to actually give back to the cruising community. Well, not actually give back, but it's a chance to actually go to Antarctica, which you don't do racing. Mm -hmm. So I thought, how can I get myself on board? So I did. And <laughs> together we now run an expedition offshore sailing school. So we take students aboard our 46-foot boat for two to three weeks of ocean passage learning with class structure every day and then testing and after which you qualify for offshore insurance if you're taking your own boat and you know what kind of boat you want to buy. You've done an ocean passage with instruction, so you're a better risk for your insurance company, but you're more educated as to what you would like to have in a boat and what's involved in sailing offshore. So this is for people who are serious about doing passages, know that they want to do this, but feel like they need a little bit of more instruction in mm -hmm. what it what it's about right so that's the onboard so you know how to sail you think you might or you have a boat or you're chartered but you think you might want to go sailing offshore mm -hmm. so that's a lot of intimidation for people if they're even wondering sure. about sailing so we try and break that down into smaller seminars so here we're here mm -hmm. at the boat show doing free one-hour seminars so if you come to the show you can come and hear us free for an hour and we have 18 different topics that the show can choose of what we present from anchoring to galley to diesel engines depending who else is presenting because we don't want to compete with anybody else sure. so with our repertoire of 18 topics people the show will choose or will say hey let's do blue water sailing let's do south pacific since we're at san francisco rather than our atlantic crossing where do people go to find What's the address where they can find you? Oh, our address seminars. is the yeah. same as the boat. Our boat is called Mahina Tiari, and our okay. website is Mahina, M-A, oh, I should say it alphabetically, Mike Alpha Hotel, <laughs> India, November Alpha, Mahina, which is moon in Tahitian or uh, Hawaiian, okay. so Mahina.com. Mahina.com, great. And you mentioned earlier that you, that your dad had seen a Whitbread boat come through New right. Zealand. Probably you never imagined, or he never imagined that his daughter would be sailing in a Whitbread race. No, because dad took me down to the dock and I was a little girl and I sat on the side of the dock and he's like, well, this boat's from here and this boat does that. And so he was pointing out all these features and my dad was just animated. And we went, we were building our boat in a hippie compound. So we were all, there was 20 people building boats. We we're all living in small trailer homes next to our boats and big sheds and they're all steel and fiber, uh, steel and concrete boats. Ours was the, ours was the only fiberglass boat. And we got a documentary in and we sat in the little clubhouse and we watched the wet bread around the world race. Mm -hmm. And everyone's like, wow, and I thought, oh, that's, that's what sailing, because I had never been offshore. I thought that what, that's what sailing was. I'm like, oh, you know, there's lots of people on the boat and, yeah. and you're riding these big waves. I'm like, oh, cool. That looks like fun. And then when you actually go offshore, it's not quite like that. And so all my life, I'm like, well, why isn't it like the movies? Like <laughs> we are on our boat and I get have to, it's just, there's one storm, but the rest of it, you're just, so I thought. So you sought that out. Yeah. I'm like, ah, oh, if I, if I did that race, my dad would be really proud of me. It would be like, cause he's not, he's never, like my dad wasn't never, didn't think he'd ever do it, but mm -hmm. he just, he was more interested in the boats than the actual doing of the race. But I'm yeah. like, ah, oh, that's something I, I want to. Like I want people to go, wow, that's like impressive. So I just thought big as far as sailing went. Yeah. And so how did you get involved? Well, I thought big. And I'm like, well, dad would build everything on the boat and mum and dad. But every time he went to get the sails, he'd always complain how much they cost. He okay. would always, it was always like, oh, I've got to save for the sails. I've got to save for the sails. We would meet with the sail maker and they'd talk about it. And 
I'm like, why don't I just make sales? And then dad, I could help dad out. Like he would go, oh yeah, like if I contributed to building the boats, like dad does that and mum does this and then I make the sales, then, you know, that dad will be like, good, they'll, I'll have, you know, dad can go sailing more. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't have to work so hard. So I'm in my last year in high school and I was quite shy. Well, I mean, I just had grown up sailing. So we never, wasn't really good on the telephone or anything. Mm -hmm. So I thought, I went through the phone book and looked up sailmakers in the phone book. And because I could do calligraphy, I wrote calligraphy letters to all the sailmakers saying I wanted to be a sailmaker. And I sound like I'm five years old, but I was actually 15, 16 at this mm -hmm. stage. But I wasn't very worldly. So I wrote letters. And I didn't put my phone number, but I put my address because I was thinking I'd get a letter back. And I got a phone call a week later from a sailmaker saying, yes, you've got a job. And it just, it just like took the world, it, like ripped the carpet from underneath me. My dad's like, oh, so you, are you a sailmaker now? I said, well, I guess so. I've just been offered a job. <laughs> and so like I finished high school and the next day I was started work as a sailmaker. And I knew there was an apprenticeship program. I figured that out. Unfortunately, I got taken for a ride. So I worked the summer rush. And then at the end of summer rush, I was basically laid off. So mm. now I'm out of a job. All the other apprenticeship slots had been taken. And I'm like, man, like the world's not very nice. Like yeah. to me, <laughs> like, like what's right. up with this? So how did you get connected with the Whitbread? So that's a long story. So then from there, I had another friend who'd been a sailmaker. So I went basically walked the walk around the sailmaking lofts. So there's about seven of them in New Zealand at the time. And thankfully one of, the workers from the first loft was now a loft manager and he said, great, mm -hmm. you can, I'll take you or uh, hire you so you can work with us. There were 20 guys on the floor. This was hood sailmakers and a girl walks into the loft and they're like, no, no, no. So an opening came up for the America's Cup in Perth. So they sent me over to Perth saying my name was Andy instead of Mandy. So then like a Mandy arrives in Perth at Fremantle and the boys are like, no, 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 no. Like we want an Andy, not a Mandy. So I was put on night shift and then I ended up working on the advertising ban banners for the blimps that were going out on the racetrack. They then transferred to Sydney after the America's Cup. So I went over to Sydney and from there, switched from sail making because they didn't want a girl sail maker there. So I switched from sail making to rigging because the rigger had three guys just leave in one day. And as a sail maker and rigger, you work together. So the rigger was, I wouldn't say drunk, but he'd had a couple of beers and he's like, oh, the boys have taken off for the summer. And I said, look, I'll work for you guys. Yes, just what we need. So Sean Langman was working for a company called, or was the owner of Noakes Rigging. So their shirts said the blokes from Noakes. I mean, oh. But there were no blokes left. So I came along and said, well, I wasn't really a bloke and I wasn't really a tart or a sort or a sheila. So they put, well, they called me a sort because they couldn't put a label on me. So there were the blokes from Noakes and they put plus a sort on the back of my shirt. So people would ring up and say, hey, send the sort down to fix this or do that. And Sean took me under his wing and trained me up. And I had a girlfriend go to the... Paris boat show on demonstration with her 18 foot skiff and Essa Dudley was racing the skiffs which was quite unusual for women to race the skiffs. Came back to Australia actually when I was still sail making so this is backtrack a little bit came back to Australia and said look here is a letter from a woman at the Paris boat show who's looking at putting an all-girl crew together for the Whitbread around the world race and I applied but she wanted me to do bow I'm a driver I don't go to the front of the boat I'm six foot six you know bow people are more like you and I looked at the letter wrote down the address and then wrote to Tracy saying I was this oh I had then switched in six months anyway. 
it gets really complicated. But <laughs> from that, from Vanessa going to the Paris Boat Show, from me writing in calligraphy, I wrote a letter in calligraphy to Tracy. Uh-huh. Tracy opened the letter and said, I don't care basically who this person is. I want them on my boat. They called me in Australia, said, look, you're a sailmaker and a rigger. Um, can you be here by next week? Maiden's arriving from the boats arriving from South Africa. We've bought a wreck of a boat. We need sort of to start getting the campaign together to race around the world. Well, I want to let you go because I know you have to get back to the seminar. I do, yes. And uh, I'm playing hooky. <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Right. And I encourage you all to watch Maiden with an Open Mind, the documentary, to see it. Uh, go to our website, mahina.com, for sailing information. And to find your own passion and life and pursue it. Just, I mean, one of the girls on Maiden said, dreams do come true. And I honestly believe with a little bit of work and uh, a lot of hard work, actually, they do. So thanks. What a great note to end on. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Out the Gate Sailing Podcast. I want to hear what you think of the show. Leave me a comment in iTunes or shoot me a message directly at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. I'm Ben Shaw, the host, editor, and producer of the show. Until next time.